I'm still seething over Pam last week. Did you know to this day she denies it? Crazy. What's the story this time around? This week, a self-proclaimed Amish stud convinces his Mennonite mistress to perform the most grave of deadly sins. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast right at the intersection of human interest and true crime, where the villains were turned to evil by lust, greed, and passion. Go check us out on socials at Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram, and search Love Murder Podcast on Facebook. And if you enjoy this podcast, please love slash murder a five-star rating on Apple or wherever you're listening. We super appreciate it, guys. And we promise you, if you keep leaving great ratings and reviews, we will always jump right into the story for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the trade-off. Yeah, number one. And that being said, let's be true to our word. And I think we should jump right in. What do you think, Andy? I'm so intrigued by this. This is definitely an interesting case. We've had some real bangers lately. Um, You know, obviously, the sex slave murders were very gnarly, and Pam Smart is a huge case for a reason. It's fascinating. So this one is a little bit more under the radar, and there's like a totally different culture involved because it takes place in Amish country. Yep. So buckle up. This is going to be a weird one, but it'll just go to show us and everybody else that people are alike no matter what religion they are, no matter where they're raised, no matter how you try to divorce yourself from technology. Human nature has a way of coming through and it's not always pretty. Nope. Let's let's churn some butter. <laughs> I know we should like do a little like sample of <laughs> Al Yankovic <laughs> uh, living in an Amish paradise over yeah. here. I wish we could. <laughs> Guys, just imagine that, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so I, oh, I'm going to do my sources on time this episode. So I read A Killing in Amish Country by Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris. And you may remember Greg Olson as the author of Bitch on Wheels. I was just going to say. Uh-huh. Coming back. His, yeah, we used his work for episode six, The Ballad of the Bed-Hopping Black Widow. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a fun writer. Uh, there's also an episode of Deadly Devotion on ID Channel about this. And then I used some comments, really, from the Jim Fisher true crime blog. So we'll add those in at the end. So I'll mention him in again at the end. Also, in the book, pseudonyms were used to protect the identities of the children and some of the women, which I'll point out when we get to them, I decided to keep the pseudonyms in to protect the innocent. So cool. I will be using different names for the children and some of the women involved in the story, okay? Cool. Sounds good. Okay. A beautiful morning dawned on June 2nd, 2009 in Apple Creek, Ohio, home to many devout Amish uh. families, already up for hours by 8 a.m. Do you know where Apple Creek is? No, but I was wondering what Amish town you were going to pick because there's yeah. it's a lot in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Apple Creek, Ohio. But one household was slow to wake that morning, and when they did, they would be plunged into a never-ending nightmare. 
The household was that of Eli Weaver, his devoted wife Barbara, and their five children. Following a birthday party the night before for eldest son Harley, who had turned nine, Eli had left for a fishing trip, and two of the Weaver's cousins had slept over. Susie, the eldest girl cousin, woke just before 8 a.m. to help her aunt with the smallest children and the morning chores. She was surprised she wasn't up. Industrious and introspective Barbara usually woke before dawn to write in her journal and begin her daily chores. Susie began to prepare breakfast when the younger children started shrieking. She followed the sobbing down the hall to find the small children surrounding Barbara's bed, her body deadly still, the sheets splattered with blood. She immediately flew from the room to find the eldest, Harley, only just nine years old. She yelled for him in Pennsylvania Dutch, the mother tongue of the Amish. With a trembling hand, the poor boy touched his mother's cold leg and whispered, Why isn't she answering? Why isn't Mama moving? A gunshot wound was apparent on Barbara's chest. Though only nine years old, Harley had been around guns his entire life, as his father owned a hunting and fishing supply store. He knew intellectually that his mother had been killed, yet his brain still refused to make it make sense. He hadn't heard any gunfire. How could this happen? As the children, only two to eight years old, attempted to open Barbara's eyes and wake her from her eternal rest, the dawning horror finally crystallized in Harley's mind, and he ran from the house to a neighbor's for help. Something terrible has happened to our mother, he screamed. Something evil, malicious, and bone-chillingly self-serving had happened to Barbara Weaver. And the person responsible for this devastation? Perhaps the one person who should have been protecting this family at all odds. This is a story about forbidden desires, craven selfishness, callous manipulation, and love gone fatally wrong. Sounds like a perfect love murder tale. It sounds exactly like a love murder story. Oh, those poor kids. They were just babies. There was actually also a a little baby also home. So, I mean, we're talking infant to nine years old. And think about how young nine-year-olds are for Harley to have to be so mature and handle this situation. So let's do a quick overview of what Amish people believe and adhere to so we can have a better understanding of the environment Eli and Barbara lived in. So we all know that the Amish drastically limit technology, and the reason that they do this is to keep families focused on principles and values that matter, rather than those that distract us from a righteous and healthy path. They believe the focus in America is on the individual. Well, their focus is on the church first and then family. So from their perspective, not long ago, most Americans lived life like this too. So back in the agricultural days, when the church was more than just a religious meeting place, but also the social and educational heart of a community, that's kind of where they feel like America prospered and when people's values were rights. And that's like really the time they want to focus on. And honestly, (laughs) with the way social media is going these days, I don't think they're exactly wrong. (laughs) No, I just think it's so extreme. It's so extreme. Some of the things in this story really stuck out to me about how insular and cloistered they are. Obviously, every culture and subgroup can 
practice their life and their community the way that they see fit. But I think that it really doesn't prepare the children for if they do have the choice to pick what life they want to live. It doesn't prepare them at all for it. That's why there's like those sensationalized shows about Amish kids breaking off when they're 18, because it's like watching a five-year-old try to navigate the world. Yeah, it's definitely Amish gone wild. Yeah. (laughs) So they are, by and large, a peaceful and kind group willing to lend neighbors a hand, Amish and English, which is their word for non-Amish people, alike. When Barbara was murdered in 2009, there had only been two other reported murders within the Amish community in more than 250 years. Whoa. Yeah, and this is, like, also because they mostly keep things extremely private. So I don't know if necessarily, like, out of all of the 1800s, there wasn't a murder that they might have just handled within their own community, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But this is, like, only the third reported case as of 2009. Crazy. There's also considerable differences between the Amish sects. The Schwarzentruber Amish are the most conservative. They even paint their barns red, finding white too flashy, which I think is funny because red seems flashier than white to me. Red seems more seductive, for sure. Yeah, exactly. They do not permit the use of electricity or indoor plumbing, and they also don't allow Velcro buttons or bicycles. Yeah, Velcro buttons or bicycles, so everything must be woven or strung? Woven or like ties or pins. Oh my God. And no bicycles? No bicycles, baby. Yeah, I know. It sounds really – so this is the most conservative though. There's also the Old Order Amish, which despite the medieval sounding name is the more progressive of the sects. And this is typically what we think of as Amish conventionally. There's also New Order Amish that are like more progressive, but like Old Order Amish is is generally what you think of. They're not allowed to own vehicles, but they are allowed to ride in them so long as they are not driving. They are also allowed to use gas lamps and some have indoor plumbing. So in between the Schwarzentruber and the Old Order is where you'd find Andy Weaver Amish, which is the sect that Eli and Barbara and their families belong to. So compared to Old Order, they have greater restrictions on farm, business, and home technologies, a stricter interpretation of shunning, which is what happens when an individual chooses to leave the Amish lifestyle or they do something that goes against their values and the community decides to kick them out. And they have stricter youth regulations. So they can use some propane gas, but absolutely no indoor plumbing. They also have ice boxes to this day, or even they'll take like a refrigerator, but they'll remove the machinery and they will like put in big blocks of ice, which is really Wait, interesting. what? So they can't have refrigerators that run on electricity, obviously. Yeah. So they'll have ice boxes like the old ones that you, you know, that they used to have back in the day. Or they'll even have some have refrigerators, but they like remove the mechanical part and put the big ice blocks in the refrigerator. But where do they get the ice blocks from? You cut them from lakes and other places. And I'm sure that if there's a like an Amish community, you could even order them probably. 
Um, so what really separates the Andy Weaver Amish from the old order is their strident feelings on shunning. So the sect got their name from a 1952 minister named, ding, 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 Andy Weaver, <laughs> who warned against mainstreaming. And one way to limit the subtle shift to English ways was to brutally and mercilessly cut off anyone who left the Amish way of life. Basically, they figured... If one kid went on his rumspringa and was having a great time and living the English lifestyle and he's still talking to his younger brother, then he might convince his younger brother to also go to the English. So by doing a really harsh shunning where nobody's allowed to talk to them, that's basically like they're dead, then I think the leaders felt like they could basically staunch the bleeding. Yeah. People wouldn't leave. But it's so cruel and isolating. Yeah. So Barbara Weaver was born February 2nd, 1979 in Oroville, Ohio, to a strict Andy Weaver Amish family. One of four children, Barbara attended Amish school through eighth grade, then left as most Amish do to help with housework and farm chores and prepare her for her most important roles, that of a wife and a mother. Barbara was a sweet, bright, loving girl who adored her family and adhered strictly to the Amish lifestyle. Even during her rumspringa, which, of course, I think you know, Andy, but if you guys don't know at home, that's the the running around period for young Amish teens. That's the area where basically from sometime around 16 to maybe the early 20s, they're not baptized yet into the Amish faith, so they can potentially make that choice to leave, and they're not held to the same standards that baptized Amish are. So yeah, so this is the time when they basically will experiment with drugs and alcohol, go to parties with English kids, wear English clothing, and even learn to drive a car. And all of that is allowed during this period. So most of the youth actually end up returning to the fold, but about 10 to 15% leave permanently following their rumspringa. I can't believe it's only that much. Everyone has a strong relationship with the way they grew up yeah, and where their family is located. And I think also, if you can remember all the way back to our teens and early 20s, it's such a tumultuous time in your life. And especially if you like got your heart broken and, you know, you got too many hangovers, maybe you're like, ooh, this lifestyle is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back and just find a nice Amish boy to marry and stop drinking and doing drugs because this, this hurts, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. So Barbara was not an Amish gone wild. She was a real goody-goody girl. All she did during her rumspringa was go to sleepovers, eat pizza, and read Christian romance novels. That all sounds fun, though. Yeah, exactly. She even read, like, the the raciest thing she did was read Sweet Valley High books. Oh, my God. (laughs) Read those when I was, like, nine. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah, that was, like, the most English thing that she did. So So she she was very certain that this was the lifestyle for her. She never questioned it. And I'm so bummed about this, but I think this is so fascinating – Barbara is the very first subject of this show that we've had in 15 episodes who does not have a single photo taken of her. Whoa. Uh Uh-huh. The Amish don't take or pose for photos. So even though she is born in 1979, she is a scant five years older than myself, six years older than you. Not a single image of her survives they said sadly the only picture that was ever taken of barbara 
was one that the medical examiner took after her death. I was going to ask you what we were going to do about the Instagram because I had a feeling that a lot of these subjects weren't going to be photographed. Yeah. Well, we have a picture of her gravestone. Okay. There's pictures of Eli, which you'll see why later. There's also some other people involved as we'll get more into the story that we will have pictures of. And um, they do have pictures of the crime scene as well. Luckily, this book had photos. So I'll definitely make sure to share those with you, Andy, so you can add them to Instagram and for you guys. So there's going to be some content on the Instagram, just none of Barbara, sadly. And it's really actually hard. They they dedicated – Greg and Rebecca dedicated the book to Barbara. And, and they even wrote an afterword about how they felt that they didn't really get to – explore her life as much because it was very un-Amish to talk about her. They don't even really accept prayers after somebody has passed. They pray for people in life to go on a righteous path, but they feel like once somebody has passed, they will meet whatever their, you know, judgment is. And so that there's no use praying for them after they pass away because they're already – and especially the way Barbara lived was so righteous that there's no way she didn't – Yeah, their bed is already made made, so there's no point in praying anymore. Use your prayers for people who are on a wicked path to get them on the right path. So yeah, there wasn't just – there wasn't a lot. So there was a woman that Barbara grew up with named Ruby who talks – to the authors of the book. And she also talks on Deadly Devotion, the show on ID, about growing up with uh, Barbara. And there's some other people and like some other people privately who are Amish elders who spoke to the authors of the book. So we're getting information from them. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Barbara as much as we possibly can. But she lived an extremely private life and that was very intentional. She was described by friends as sweet, approachable, with a round face and warm hazel eyes. Her hair was extremely long, never trimmed like most Amish women, and she looked very slender, but her autopsy described her as 5'8 and 172. So she was like very slender seeming, but she was like a sturdy farm girl, actually. So she's just very fresh-faced and strong and sweet. She was only 30 years old when she was killed. So young. Barbara and Eli had known each other since they were children, but began courting when they were 18 and 19. Eli was also a member of the Andy Weaver group, his father and brother both ministers. So Eli was troubled from an early age. He was fascinated by English technology like radios and cameras. He liked drinking and even snuck out to go to the movies. Ooh, trouble. I know. It's so funny because we're talking about somebody who was born in 1980. And like, if this is what your kid does, you know, in our society, you're like, I'm doing fine. Yeah. (laughs) He's obsessed with cameras. He sometimes takes a drink and he likes to sneak out to the movies. You'd be like, great. My kid's doing great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But this was bad, bad, bad boy in Amish world. He was charming and handsome, and he seemed to get away with a lot, especially with his parents. His parents really loved him, and they kind of looked the other way at a lot of these behaviors, while other Amish families would be like, well, if that was my kid, he'd fall in line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after a little over a year of courting, which consisted of long buggy rides, church sing-alongs, and country walks. Whoa. I know. What era are we in, right? (laughs) The two young lovebirds were married in 1999 in a traditional Amish ceremony. Got to get married before the oh. millennium. 
Yeah, before the world ends. Although they didn't really have to worry about their computers crashing. No. What are we going to no do Y2- with all the zeros? <laughs> Y2K. There's no Y2K <laughs> concerns here. Also, I was like, I want to make sure when I was writing this one, I was like, I want to make sure that we're really respectful to the Amish people. And then I was like, but if we're not, no one's going to get offended because no one's going to hear it from the Amish community. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, Jesse Pratt. Touche. They're probably not listening to a murder podcast on their own. I AirPods. think there's room to be bewildered by their lifestyle without making fun. You know what I mean? I think Absolutely. there's like such 100%. a – I think that there's a, a serious draw to it sometimes <laughs> anyway. And I also think that some people just are more traditional and it and it makes sense for their way of life. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know a lot of people though who are raised English who become Amish. Are they allowed to? I'm interested in that. I don't know. I mean because you – Can you become Amish? I feel like – I feel like it's something that they kind of do from when they're born, you know? They're like the only group that doesn't try to get recruits. Yeah. They're like, no, they're you like, guys nah, stay, you away. stay away from <laughs> You're already infected. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they were married in a traditional Amish ceremony, which is a long day beginning with a religious service and the exchanging of vows at a neighbor's house. And also, oh, this, this Amish sect too, they don't meet at churches. They meet at neighbor's house. It's very personal, their religion. So their church services take place at alternate members' homes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. And then they go to the bride's family's house where they have a feast. And I was thinking that this has to be the driest wedding imaginable. Oh, my God. Do not sign me up. And, no, it's all day long with no booze. So you can say what you want about how long a full Catholic wedding mass is, but at least you get to hit up the blood of Christ later on, you know? Yeah, and like usually there's drinks after. I don't know about like – Exactly. I, I guess some people who are super, super religious frown upon drinking still, but – For the most part, people are usually pretty cool about yeah. it. I guess my aunt and uncle – my mom's brother married a woman who was the child of missionaries and they had a dry wedding they, and they had like the reception in a basement church with like punch oh. and my 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 family are all like hardened alcoholics so they were all like who brought a flask what is going on here <laughs> it kind of makes it more fun though cuz you just like pass around yeah. the flask and get wasted Exactly. It's just like a private <laughs> private party then. So after the wedding ceremony, Barbara traded in her black cap, which designated her as single, for the white starched cap of a married lady. And Eli began to grow out his beard, which is the sign of a married man. Then Barbara gave birth to five children in seven years. Jesus. I mean, that is one after the other. So women did not get a break. Much. I mean, they don't need to recruit anyone. They're each building an no, army. No, I guess they're making their own recruits. There you go. She was a loving, devoted, and caring mother. Barbara found motherhood extremely fulfilling. But she struggled deeply with her marriage. And this is mostly because Eli was a shitty, shitty husband. Oh, <laughs> that no. That will make your marriage bad. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. Eli had nailed the trifecta of abuse. Physical, sexual, and financial. So... First of all, they were mismatched sexually right from the beginning. 
Eli wanted adventurous sex and he would demand oral sex, which Barbara refused to perform as she believed it was against God's will. I was going to say, I, I would assume that that's against their I'm, – I'm sure that you can only yeah. really have sex to procreate, right? Exactly. Yeah. So she had been taught that the only sanctified sex acts were those between a husband and a wife that could result in conception. Yeah. So probably yeah, only so, like during ovulation too then. I don't know how crazy they were about exactly that. I mean, they don't have like the technology to track the no, ovulation. No, but they, they probably do the same way that Catholics do it with like the old school calendar tracking. Yeah. Of- I mean, it's potential. Yeah. Which I mean, would be a total bummer. I don't know. I think <laughs> I was telling this to Nathaniel. He's like, no, no, no. You could totally get pregnant from blowjobs. You just, you know, it's just the hardiest sperm make it all the way down. You know, it's to really give them an obstacle course. <laughs> could you imagine? I was like, I 100% guarantee you some man told his wife Oh, that. 100%. <laughs> And they can't look it up online. No, exactly. They just got to take his word for it. So as a result of her refusal, Eli was sexually aggressive with her, which sucks. So it's like, seems like he took out a lot of aggression on her. I just never Um, understood how and why a man would want to force a blowjob. Like your dick is going into a woman's mouth. Like that just sounds dangerous to me. I like never. I I, that's. I can't imagine being a dude and like forcing someone to suck my dick. It's like you're putting your your whole bits in danger. Just also forcing anyone to do anything sounds like such a turn off. Oh God, it's there's just obviously some screws loose, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that Eli, especially as we'll come to see is exceedingly selfish, yeah. exceedingly immature. You know, everything's about him this entire story. So though his hunting and fishing supply store seemed like it was doing well, Eli refused to give his wife money, and it seemed like he was doing it to be controlling and vindictive. And one friend talked to the authors about a time Barbara showed up to church ashamed and in tears. It had been her turn to bake pies for an after-church snack, and Eli had refused to give her the money Ugh. for ingredients. I was going to say, what is she spending money on? But it totally makes sense, stuff like that, where you're supposed to be contributing towards the community. And that's like – Yeah, and he knew she was still going to show up for church because she wouldn't lie. That's that's a sin to her. Yeah. Not going to church is a sin. So she was forced to go empty-handed. And then when nobody could eat after the church services, it was like, well, wasn't it Barbara's turn? Yep. Everyone would know that and like think that she did something wrong. Yeah. So I think that's really abusive and really cruel. Oh, for sure. And she probably felt so full of shame. Mm-hmm. He was also witnessed pushing Barbara around and manhandling her roughly by their own children and neighbors, but nothing was ever done about it. So the Amish adhere to very traditional gender roles. Man works, woman stays home, man is to be honored as head of the household. And they also are very private and very much let, you know, every household run itself. If the husband is doing screwed up things, it's kind of like that's his house to sort out. That's not my business. So Barbara was very much at Eli's mercy. One Amish leader commented in the book that even if Barbara had reported Eli's conduct to the bishop, she would have been asked, what did you do that your husband would treat you like this? Wow. Mm-hmm. That's just like taking so, the like that's taking their 
religion and their way of life and using it directly against the person that you're supposed to be taking care of. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think unfortunately, well, fortunately in the end, but unfortunately for Barbara, her story has helped change some of the ways the Amish leaders approach these types of marriages and you know how it's changed how they see the warning signs in these abusive or you know domestic violence type situations you know that's great meanwhile eli was disappearing overnight and for sometimes weeks on end leaving barbara and the kids to fend for themselves without giving the money or anything without giving them money she didn't have any access (gasps) to bank accounts to he would give her some cash she said she has five children and she says that she he would give her $300 for the entire month. And she would have to try to stretch that budget. And then he would just leave. And and that was all she had. Where would he go? He was cheating on her with a ton of different women. Like in Amish communities? Yeah. Some in the Amish communities, but mostly English women. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. So though divorce is considered a grave sin and can result in shunning, Barbara considered it in 2006. I mean, she had no choice. No. <laughs> around he wasn't providing for them and she ended up moving closer to her sister while she and Eli separated during this absence Eli was having an affair with an English woman and living with her dog and he left the community like the entire Amish community and his family wow so we're gonna get into more detail about all of Eli's many infidelities literally in a few moments but During this period, it appeared he couldn't handle the permanent break with his family and community, and after a few months, he eventually returned, begging forgiveness from the church elders and being allowed to return to the fold. Still, his behavior hardly improved. He refused to go to counseling with Barbara and continued his strange absences day and night. So Barbara in desperation turned to journaling, noting Eli's moods and his comings and goings and writing letters to a counselor who she was no longer permitted to see. So while (sighs) he was gone, she started seeing a mental health professional who excelled at dealing with especially Amish relationships and people who were struggling with the Amish faith or people who had just left the Amish faith or, you know, that type of person. And it was really helping her. And then when he came back, he was like, you're absolutely not going to do this anymore. And so she, luckily the person that she was talking to was working pro bono with her because obviously she couldn't pay that person anymore. Oh my God. And they would correspond via letter that she would have like sent to her sister. Wow. Because she still needed so much help. And in the book, they have some of like her her statements about why she can't get Eli to love her and how she's trying to be a faithful wife and how she knows that like she's a good submissive wife, but it's never enough. And and maybe it's like the way she looks, maybe it's the way she acts, like something he's just never satisfied with her. And it's so clear that she's trying to work through this and trying to gain the self-confidence to be like, you know what? It's not freaking me, you know? Yeah. But she's struggling with that because that's not the way her community and her upbringing uh, lends itself to thinking about those things, you know? Yeah, it's, it's really devastating. In 2008, she became the primary caretaker for her mother who was dying, which definitely distracted her from her marital issues yeah. for a while. But after her mother's passing, Barbara was once again keenly aware of Eli's failings as a husband that made her doubt her own abilities as a wife, mother, and woman of faith. By the time of the murder in 2009, the marriage was barely holding on by a thread. Ugh. So what was Eli doing? Seriously, 
Mm-hmm. And could it have contributed to Barbara's untimely death? Question mark. Oh, I don't know. I <laughs> I think so. So let's dig in. When Eli is interrogated by the police after Barbara's murder, he confesses to two affairs. Now, this is really just the the tip of the iceberg. The two affairs he had millions. Um, <laughs> Literally guy millions. In, maybe not millions. He wishes he had millions. Um, his homage dick would have fallen off. Um, he's a real butthole, this guy. But I feel like the two he confesses to gives us a good jumping off point. So we'll start with those two and then we'll kind of mention a couple more as they come up with the story. Okay. Eli mentions a woman named Barb Raber. And Barb, Barb is going to – Barb. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Another Barbara. And Barb Raber is going to come up in this story a lot. And it gets very confusing that she has the same name as his wife, who is the victim. So I'm <sighs> only going to call her Barb. And Barbara is always going to be the wife. I'm already mad about this. <laughs> I know. If you need any clarification, please stop me because it gets so confusing that on the Jim Fisher True Crime blog, literally out of 45 comments, I think 25 of them were people arguing about whether it was Barb or Barbara about something. <laughs> yes. Oh so my God. Barb Raber is who I'm going to talk about. And I'll use her last name a little bit too, just to make sure we're really... Yeah, clear I, th- I think we'll be okay. Between women. Yes, and they're wildly different women. I mean, of value and quality. So <laughs> I think she it would be a bummer for Barbara Weaver to be compared to Barb Raber. And another named Sherry Lindstrom. Now, Sherry Lindstrom is a pseudonym. So all of the women that have affairs with Eli came forward and talked to the authors and the police with the understanding that they wanted to use a different name, which if I slept with Eli, I wouldn't want anyone to know my name either. <laughs> and that goes for Barb Raber too or no? No, not Barb Raber <laughs> okay. because you'll see her her shit gets out there. So we we know who Barb Raber we, is. Barb is the you. only – we see you, Barb. We know what you did. Barb is the only one who's who's – we're using her real okay. name. Okay, cool. Yeah, I would hope that they wouldn't choose a pseudonym that was the same name as the wife. That would seem like I know. I was like, they're really complicating this. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I think the reason he confessed only to these two affairs was because there were witnesses in the Amish community that were aware of these two particular indiscretions. Yeah, so he's like, I'm going to confess, but it's like, bitch, we know. We already know. He knew people were going to talk about this anyway to the cops. So he he just – Exactly. So he claimed wife Barbara was aware of his relationship with Sherry. It had finished, he had repented, and he had been forgiven by Barbara and the church. However, Sherry was not the one that he lived with when he was on his adult rumspringa or whatever he was doing. That was another woman named Shelley. So Sherry's like new. So it doesn't seem likely that Barbara really knew about Sherry, actually. Okay. There was also a longstanding on and off affair with Barb Raber, which is going to be a very interesting and messy relationship. While Eli looked boyish underneath his beard and potentially younger than his 29 years, Barb looked much older than her 39 years. <laughs> It is definitely – we've had a couple of these people where their evil insides make them look old on the outside. And she is certainly – this is the case with her. Like normally, like I say, we would never judge anyone on their appearance. It's clear she must have had a rough life. But she is not a good person. We do have a picture of her. We have a couple. So we'll definitely put that up on the Instagram so you guys can see. 
And I swear she looks like she's in her 50s minimum. She's 39 years old. Yeah, she has a small frame and graying brunette hair with like oversized glasses. And this is definitely one of those cases where, you know, when you you find out a celebrity cheated on his wife and his wife's gorgeous and then they show pictures of the mistress and you're like, what? Yeah, like juice hog with the nanny. Yes. Or like anyone who slept with Tiger Woods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any of the many, many women who did, none of them were as cute as his wife. No. This is like one of those type situations because I don't know what all of the other women look like, but what I know from Barb is it was not not good. But who's given blowjobs? Barb oh. Raber's given blowjobs. Barb the, the – <laughs> Barb the blowjob machine. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that counts for a lot. That goes pretty far. Yeah. yeah. She kind of has like a methy toothless look too. Oh, God. So, you know, without teeth, you're probably pretty good at uh, gumming. Beach. Gumming. Gumming the dick. Gumming. <laughs> oh, God. We're probably going to have to cut that out. That's terrible. <laughs> Okay, so let's actually get into Barb's history because I feel like opening with she looks like crap but gives good head is not the kindest introduction for the show. I don't know. I'm digging it. Yeah. (laughs) She has some positive qualities apparently. (laughs) Her story is definitely wrought with sadness. She was adopted into a New Order Amish family when she was only six months old and there are some reports that she had an alcoholic young mother. Okay. The couple that adopted her was a loving Amish family that had already faced unimaginable tragedy. So Katie and Menno Miller are Barb's adoptive parents. They had given birth to four little boys who all died. What? Mm-hmm. How? This is all throughout the 1960s. Like the first one died in 1961. The last one died in 1969. The youngest was only six weeks old and their second born, Timothy hung on until he was seven and then he died as well from what all all four children were diagnosed so they didn't know at the time so i'm going to go into what they thought it was what they tried to fix in the end it's something that they had not discovered yet so this is taking place in like the 50s and 60s and just the technology was not caught up to what was going on genetically with these children unfortunately okay so all four children were diagnosed with severe developmental disabilities and like what they actually labeled back in the 60s, mental retardation, seizures and dangerous swelling of the extremities. There was no genetic testing done during this era, nor did the doctors give the couple any indication that this condition was inherited. So they just kept having kids, not realizing that this was a genetic condition that most likely all of their children would have. And they they were really devout, so they would just pray for a healthy baby And every single tiny baby boy was born afflicted and suffered until their untimely death. Like when I first was reading the story, I was like, oh my God, is there some sort of Munchausen by proxy situation going on here? How do all four of these kids get sick and die? Yeah. And it was really just the doctors had no idea. They didn't have a great understanding of genetic conditions. And what's absolutely sad is that with modern medicine, What ended up being a death sentence for these little ones 
would have become very manageable like now if it happened. Today, Katie's and Menno's sons would have had a newborn screening that likely would have found a rare genetic condition called an inborn error of metabolism. Huh? They would... Uh huh. I had never heard of this before, but there there is treatment for this. Uh, they would immediately be fed a low protein diet, and depending on the specific diagnosis, could be candidates for a liver transplant. They likely would not have had any cognitive impairment. They would not die at such a young age, and they would live a close to normal lifespan. Oh, that's so sad. Isn't that devastating? Yeah. So you can imagine what kind of grief these parents had and they were amazing humans that really had a lot of optimism and faith and even though they went through this terrible experience they ended up adopting three little girls and Barb was the middle child but sadly only the eldest girl Edna ended up living anything close to a stable and untroubled life the youngest was a constant disciplinarian issue and nightmare and that continued into her adult life and Barb was a prolific and almost pathological liar from a very young age Whoa. a family friend said Barb lied her stories just didn't make sense she exaggerated she fibbed and her mother knew she lied and didn't know what to do about it it was a big problem when she was 22, Barb left the Amish community and became a Mennonite. So Mennonites believe a lot of the same principles as the Amish, and many still do wear traditional clothes and drive horse-drawn buggies, but most speak English, wear English-style clothing, and use electricity and telephones as well as driving cars. She married a member of the conservative Mennonite church she belonged to named Ed Raber, and the two had three sons. By all accounts, Barb was a mostly neglectful mother and an even worse housekeeper. Oh, no. She was a legit hoarder. <gasps> no. Yeah. So what they said about Barb's home was that it was the home of a woman who was overwhelmed, depressed, anxious, and utterly compulsive. The two-story brick house on Township Road 310 was years beyond messy or cluttered. Those who visited left shaking their heads and wondering how Ed or the children could find anything at all. Stacks of stuff, toys, computers, piles of clothes that would never see an iron filled every available space. If that woman's home life had been a cable TV show, it would have been something along the lines of Amish hoarders, said a friend familiar with the conditions inside the house. Yikes. So she was just kind of a messy person in general. And it seems that the only pleasure she had in life and the source of her, you know, scant self-confidence was derived through several extramarital affairs with Amish men. That was kind of like her thing. There was certainly a deep hole inside of Barb that was full of pain and maybe she had a lot of other symptoms and things going on with her. We don't really know, but she never really coped with whatever those demons were and she just filled it with buying things and meaningless sex. Got it. Okay. Her favorite of these affair partners was most certainly Eli, who had a strong hold over Barb. Eli and Barb had met when Eli briefly worked in construction for Barb's husband, Ed, and by 2009, the affair had gone on for years. Barb, who spoke fluent Pennsylvania Dutch as a result of growing up in the Amish community, made a living as a taxi driver for the Amish specifically. And so remember that they can, some of them can ride in cars, but they can't drive. Yep. So being able to speak Pennsylvania Dutch is actually pretty lucrative for somebody who caters exclusively to the Amish community. 
So the entire community knew there was something fishy between Eli and Barb, the English taxi driver lady. Eli had even been told specifically to stay away from Barb by the church when he repented and was welcomed back into the community. And this was a warning that he did not heed. Wait, they call her English even though she's Mennonite? Yep. Oh, wow. Technically, to the Amish, the Mennonites are English. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So they, and the Mennonites don't consider themselves Amish. Okay. But many people, when they leave the Amish community, they move right into the Mennonite community because so many of the religious teachings are similar and so many of the values are the same. Yeah, easy transition. But they can, but they can use electricity and they can use cars and they can use phones. And it's just like, it's, it's like Amish light, yeah. you know? But because of that distinction, because of their use of, of, you know, all this technology, the Amish would not consider a Mennonite Amish. Okay. While conducting his affair with Barb Raber and floating in and out of his wife's life, Eli managed to also find love and sex in a truly forbidden place. (laughs) Online. (laughs) Wow. Yep. So apparently he purchased a computer for his hunting and fishing store, but he also owned a smartphone for personal use, which was, of course, strictly verboten. So he would charge it at, like at the store and he would hide it in his barn. And I think he also had like some sort of external charger that he used and kept in the barn as well. In 2006, shortly after he moved back in with his family after his failed affair with an English woman named Shelly, Eli first went online. So he's like, 2006 is like the very like beginning of the MySpace Facebook stuff. I guess not the beginning, but you're like right in that era, yep, you know? Yeah. He went by the name Amish Sud. Wow. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. On a mobile phone social networking site called Moco Space. Did you ever hear of that one? No. Like M-O-C-O? Yeah, M-O-C-O Space. I never heard of Moco Space. And the other one he uses is Lava Life. I feel like I've heard or seen that. Maybe Lava Life. Yeah, it sounded vaguely familiar. Uh, So, yeah, those were the two big ones he used. And his subject line read, who wants to do an Amish guy? You've got not to be kidding Not burying the lead. <laughs> no, I am not. This was really pulled from his profile. Under his profile, he wrote that he loves hunting, fishing, anything outdoors. I want friends. And if you have what it takes, you can be my friend. You suck my D. If you suck my D. Also, he used like the letter U for all of the U's like B instead of B-E, two instead of two is very like early 2000s texting type, wow. you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was doing that thing like, you can be my friend if you have what it takes, which I think also was like a very early 2000s, like, remember it was called nagging, like when a guy would pick up a girl by being rude to her? Yeah. Yeah. So he's just, this is all gross this is all not attractive and to make matters worse his profile picture which we will certainly be putting up on the ig <laughs> was like one of those bad body selfies where his head's not in it and it just shows his naked torso ew can you see like the bottom like, of his beard yeah well you know you can't really see his beard but you see his like scraggly chest hair and he's ew. like i mean he's in good shape you know for like a skinny Amish guy, he's got like some defined abs kind of, but it's just, it's so weird and sex creepy to put your profile picture as just body parts. Yeah. 
It's very, very weird. So he had 141 friends on the site with names like Too Much Ass, 69 Smiley Girl. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. Black Barbie Fisheye 143, Love Me Asian, Naughty Little Sex Slave, and Tweety Bird Fan. (laughs) Oh, my God. Did he write this in the book? Yes, this okay, is that's from the book. Amazing. He, he like mm-hmm. he's I'm very love murdery. Yes, um, I'm actually. I ordered like two more books from Greg Olson. Because awesome. I feel like I, we need to I meet like him. The, exactly. The details he includes are so priceless. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's great. It really helps he's paint the picture. On, he really does. Um, he's also on the Deadly Devotions, and he's he's an interesting guy. So in April 2008, he began a sexual relationship with a woman named Sherry, who we already talked about, Yeah, um, who was intrigued by the young Amish man. She like had never dated an Amish man. She hadn't really known an Amish man. So I think this was very romantic in her in her idea. They were like two lovers that came from different worlds, yeah. you know? So the two exchanged nudes and would sneak around together, Sherry often picking Eli up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning so he could use the excuse of early morning hunting or fishing trips to leave the family home. Eventually, the two told each other they loved one another and their sex acts became flagrant. They were having illicit meetups at Eli's store. Ooh often forgetting to lock the door and they once got caught by an Amish man who would go on to report Eli to a bishop and once by Eli's own son. (gasps) Yeah, and it appears that the child did not tell his mother, but it seems like this happened pretty shortly before the murder. So it might have had something to do with his interest in her dying quickly after this incident. Oh my God, that's horrible. Horrible. So unbeknownst to Sherry, there were many, many, many more women besides just her and not even just her and Barb Raber. The police eventually dug through Eli's online accounts, finding dozens of women entanglements. Eli had even impregnated a woman named Misty. He had never, ever met their daughter, who was born in July of 2008, though he faithfully sent a check for $350 each month. So at least she's getting more money than he's giving to his own family. Unreal. Mm-hmm. For one kid. Until the week – for one kid, yep. Um, and then the checks came faithfully until the week of his wife's murder, and they stopped coming permanently. In 2009, he met a woman named Tabitha who spoke to the police and the authors of this book, but she reportedly said that though she had feelings for him, they mostly kept their relationship in a deep friendship zone. She referred to him as her best friend, Um, but he had a constant willingness to try to make things sexual. Like he would always talk to her about, you know, he said that he had never gone down on a woman and he wanted to know how to make women orgasm and what, what she liked and stuff. So even though she says they didn't have a sexual relationship, it's clear that he was really trying. Yeah. Do you think he and actually felt that way about that? Or do you think he was just trying to fuck her? I don't know. I think that he probably used that on a lot of women okay. by playing like the innocent Amish guy. Yeah. Like, I really want to please a woman, but like we don't do that in our community. But I really want to like, you know, make a woman come. You know, like do you want to try that with me? And then you he's know? like, suck my dick. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The old bait and switch. (laughs) Um, I mean, 
it's possible that he was immature and interested in these things. Like, you know, I'm sure being in your late 20s and Amish is like being a teenager in yeah. other ways, you know? Yeah. But based on his actions in general and his callousness and his manipulativeness, I think it was probably just a ploy to get yeah. more action. Yeah. So yeah, now it's no surprise why he was keeping his family on an almost non-existent budget. He was paying child support and financially supporting a lot of other women. Wow. When Tabitha ran onto hard times, he helped her buy a new computer and cell phone. And get this, he added her to Barb Raber's phone plan. Oh my God, just uh-huh. putting him on there. Yep, so... So unbeknownst to Barb's husband, Ed, she had added both Eli and his little friend to her family plan at Eli's request. Oh. So she knew about Tabitha and she still did it. And Eli didn't really pay her. He, She says later like that he would pay her like 50 bucks here or there, but he wasn't paying the amount of the bills yeah. that he and Tabitha own, owed. So she, he was just like, yeah, put it on my tab, Barb. And she was like doing that for him. She was coming over whenever he wanted blowjobs and doing it on demand. Like, she really was, like, so sprung for him that she would do anything for him. So he also reportedly paid for another woman named Candy's rent for a few months while she was out of a job. So he's playing, like, you know, the benefactor for all of these mistresses. Sugar daddy. Well, mm-hmm. Well, his own family is practically starving. Wow. I feel like he's in, like, the wrong religion. (laughs) Exactly. He needs, like, to be in one of those, like, polygamist religions. Like, he would really thrive. For sure. Or not be married and just be a single scumbag. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it's just – it's, like – I mean, this behavior is gross no matter what. But, like, involving a wife and children, especially a wife – five children. Yeah. Yeah. And a wife that cannot get a job because it goes against their teachings. Yeah. Like she has no way of – like it sounds like she was a real go-getter. Like she was a, like a very industrious person. She probably would have gotten a job herself, you know? Yeah, but he, he, he has her right where he wants her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. So with almost every one of Eli's extramarital affairs, the relationships went quickly from friendship to sex to love – to Eli discussing how he needed his wife to die. Casual. Every single one of these women would say that eventually he would bring it up. And depending on how they responded, he would either like play it off like a joke, like, oh, you know, it's just a joke. Or he would just say like very seriously, like, I mean, I'm not saying like I want to kill her or anything. I'm just saying that the only way I can get out of this is if she dies because, you know, we don't believe in divorce. So like so ridiculous. It was kind of like, you know, we've heard a lot of people do this. Like a lot of the people that manipulate other people to kill their spouse, like they're like, give a million and one reasons why they can't just divorce them. But I mean, of all of them, I guess the Amish way of life is probably the best. You I know? know. He's like, actually, because I feel like we have talked about that so many times. And we're like, just get a divorce, man. And like just people have said it in court, like whatever. But uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems like he he makes some comments later that makes it sound like maybe he had some Amish lovers, though they're not verified. None of the supposed lovers talked to anyone. But all of his English lovers, like, still didn't totally understand. Like, they were like, well, you don't even like being Amish. You want to – you use technology. You use your phone. You like music. You like driving a truck. 
like just leave, move in with me, leave the community, you know? And they didn't really understand the, the hold that the Amish lifestyle had on him. And the fact that his hunting and fishing store was predominantly patronized by Amish people. Yeah. So uh, one one affair partner was trying to like get him to consider just like getting a job at like a Dick's or something um, because he had the experience. But I think it would have been a real ego blow to go from owning his own store to having to be like an employee, employee at a Dick's, you know? Yeah, but just like a lot of criminals we talk about, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like That's exactly, Andy. My, le- my next line was he truly <laughs> wanted his cake and to eat it too. <laughs> You know me so well. (laughs) It's like, fuck off, dude. Exactly. Like, super fuck this guy. Of all the women ensnared in Eli's web, it seems only Barb Raber was willing to aid Eli in his dark task of ridding himself from his wife. Immediately after Barbara Weaver's poor children discovered her body, the investigators turned their attention to Eli. Now, we're going to get into Eli's alibi a little bit more in detail as we walk through the murder. But on the outset, it appeared that Eli had a pretty decent alibi. He had been with other Amish men on a fishing charter on Lake Erie when he received the news. And and that was like, you know, at around 8 in the morning. Yeah. He had been gone with witnesses from like 3.15 in the morning on. However, all of the witnesses interviewed, so like her sister, their neighbors, the kids, even the kids, could only point to Eli as having motive. He was well known for his infidelities and cruelty to Barbara. And I mean, really, who else would want a devoted stay-at-home Amish woman dead? No, come on. Nobody. There's she's no not other like suspects. A mafia boss here. She's not a cruel businessman who like welched on deals. You know. No. There's no other suspect, bro. Yeah. It's obviously it any haven't sense. watched enough television or true crime shows, Eli. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you should have been listening to true crime podcasts because it's always the husband, bro. Always the husband. <laughs> So the detectives received a warrant to access Eli's text messages from his secret phone, mm-hmm. and a murder plot became chillingly clear. So these are the texts that they recovered. So I'm going to read them to you. So from May 30th to June 2nd, Eli and Barb exchanged messages about methods of murder. And this <gasps> is only... This is only those like three or four days leading up to the murder. Oh, my God. They talked about poison, insecticide or nitrogen, maybe an explosion. And you'll see that they even consider killing the children. Mm-hmm. Andy's just open-jawed <laughs> looking you, at me. Do you think that um, Eli used like T9? Oh, they talk about this. Wait, we'll we'll get into like all of the things that they like try. At one point, Barb gave him they must have been like an Ambien or something. He, she gave him a whole bunch of sleeping pills and apparently he like ground them up and put them in a soda and he was like pretending to drink it and she was like, "Oh, what's that?" and he was like, "Oh, it's just a pop. You can have it." And then she took one sip and she's like, "Ooh, that tastes weird. Ew, you should throw that out. Don't drink that." And left. And so that was like one of the attempts he had. He was going to try to make it look like she overdosed on sleeping pills. Oh, my God. So these are the text messages that the cops found. And until this point, they didn't really know who Barb was. Eventually, you know, Eli would come clean that he had an affair with her. 
But when they found these text messages, this was just totally revealing. Oh, yeah. So the evening of May 30th, Eli, do you think three cc's of that tempo would do it? Barb, how would that ant stuff work? Like they're talking about totally all these different poisons. Yeah. Morning of May 31st. Eli, morning, any ideas if we could do it Tuesday morning? Barb, I was thinking. Eli, thinking of what? Barb, I was thinking of different ways. Eli, tell me. Afternoon, May 31st. Eli, was just curious. What are you thinking of for Tuesday? Barb, don't know. Be kind of hard with the kids in there. Eli, yeah, it would, but we know they would go straight to heaven if it would happen that way. Oh my God. This guy does not give a shit about anyone else but himself. He doesn't care if his children die. Wow. Uh huh. Evening, May 31st. Eli, just blow up the house or something Tuesday morning or come do her tonight. Barb, I heard ya. Eli, okay, thought you might be ignoring me. I don't care at all how it's done. Just do it. Why is she now doing it? I don't know. Because he's a pussy who's not going to do it himself and he feels like he's (laughs) Mr. Big Balls over here who can, like, tell his minion to do it, you know? That Amish stud. That Amish stud. Oof. 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 Mm. Makes me think that he smells like wet wool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This guy's the worst. Late evening, May 31st. Eli, she's going to wash again at 5 in the morn, and I want you to do something in the morning, Barb. Please. Barb, I'll see what I can come up with. Eli, tomorrow morning, babe, okay? Exclamation point, exclamation point. Barb, what if I get caught? So late evening, June 1st, and she was killed at some point in the early morning hours of June 2nd. So this is the night the night of, but kind of the night before also, you know? Barb said, Ed's off tomorrow, so now what? Eli, why the fuck is he off? Tell him you have to haul somebody, please. Which I think means use the taxi. Oh, my God. Eli, please, Barb. Barb, what time are you leaving? Eli, three in the morning. Barb, is he picking you up first or Dave? I'm so scared. What if I get caught? What if someone blames me? Who else is it going to be, honey? (laughs) Yeah. And everybody knows you guys are having an affair. <laughs> what if somebody blames me? Eli, who would see you? Who would blame you? Mm, everyone. Barb, don't know. David Weaver? So David Weaver has no relationship to Eli Weaver. I think just a lot of these guys have the Weaver last name. Eli, not if we do it this way, he won't know. Don't tell Ed you're leaving. Maybe you can sneak out and back in. Barb, do you want me to be there before you leave? Early morning, June 2nd. So this is just like, you know, a little bit after the the first set of text messages. Barb, I should just do it now. How am I supposed to see in the dark? Damn, Eli, I don't know if I can. It's too scary. Eli, morning, the bottom door is open. Barb, you have no idea how I feel. Eli, take a light with you, hon. Mwah. Like the kissing. M-W-H-A. I really like how you did that. Mwah. (laughs) Wait, how do you do it? Mwah. 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 Okay, you don't go, mwah. <laughs> Is that not how it's no, done? I like you doing that for him. <laughs> mwah. Mwah. Yeah, like that's, yeah, exactly. Like a Muppet saying, mwah. Barb, I'm so scared. Where are you, Eli? We're in Worcester, dot, dot, dot. Just don't lose anything. Barb, do you think I can drive in behind the pines? Eli, yes. 
So after Barbara is shot, the investigation is underway. That afternoon of June 2nd, Barb says, whatever you do, don't give them your phone, please. And then she says later, if someone gives the cops your number, they can trace it down. The only way they can't is if the number is changed. Looks like you guys should have thought of that before. Barb really needed some hand-holding in this. Yeah. Like, this is a bad it's play on. messy. It's bitches uh-uh. are messy. Yes. This is in small town murder. They always call like the getting away with the murder, the dismount. Okay. Like somebody can like execute a good routine and then they fuck it up on the dismount. Yeah. This is a terrible dismount. This Every- is a zero out of 10. Everything is bad here. <laughs> yeah. So later on, Barb did change their numbers. Uh, She got them both new phone numbers. And then she said to his new number, I just feel so bad about everything. I just want to hold you. Did you think it would lead to this? I just don't want to lose you or my boys. Eli never thanked her on these text messages or even asked her how she was. He was just fixated on getting a different phone. And then getting these texts were so critical to solving this murder. It almost didn't happen. The texts were the only proof that Barb Raber was anywhere near the house the night of the murder. Yeah. So they would have had no idea that she was actually the one who pulled the trigger. If we hadn't requested the text messages right away, we would have lost the case, the ADA Boyle said later. In 2009, phone companies like Verizon could retrieve only the five most recent days of text messages. Then they were gone. So police had gotten the phone numbers just in time. I mean, that's crazy. If this had been worse police work, they would have never solved this case. I mean, it's not like they have CCTV sitting around. (laughs) No, they don't. There was no nanny cams or anything. No security cams to catch anyone doing anything. In addition to contacting Verizon, the Wayne County Sheriff's Office requested records of Eli's online meetups from MocoSpace. They also wanted to look at phone records between Barb and her friend David Weaver and those between David and Eli. So David is the one that they mentioned in those text messages for very good reason. David, who was also a father of five, had once worked for Barb Raber's father-in-law. And as with Eli, Barb had been his driver and lover. Oh, this is so another it's like one a of package her. deal. Like it's like, do you want to ride or do you want to ride? <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a service I think a lot of people would enjoy. <laughs> I don't know about from Barb, but you know, no, I don't know. I don't think so. Not from Barb. No, I don't think so. So he had left the Amish community in 2007, and he married, and he drove trucks between Ohio and Pennsylvania. On the day of Barbara Weaver's murder, his old friend Barb asked him to make a phone call. So apparently they they have what sounds like a community telephone for emergencies, like in a shanty. Then they're not really Amish. Yeah, I don't I don't really know how this whole thing worked. But Eli's neighbor, Furman Yoder, who had been the first to call Eli the morning of June 2nd and tell him to come home after the murder. Yep. I heard a suspicious phone message left on the shanty telephone's answering machine the next day and told police. Fortunately, he did not erase it. So this is what the message said. It said, Eli, we got the wrong person. You can run, but not hide. It was left at 7.36 in the morning on June 3rd. It was, of course, a ruse. Barb or Eli's idea to make it appear that Barbara Weaver's murder was a mistake committed by some unknown men that were coming for Eli. Verizon phone records confirmed that the call had come from David Weaver's number. 
And detectives also learned from David that he had loaned Barb a 410 gauge shotgun, which was determined to be the the right size gauge for the bullet found in Barbara's chest mm-hmm. a few years before the murder and never got it back. It wasn't just his woman friends whom Eli tried to recruit to kill his wife. Eli had reportedly suggested that Weaver take Barbara on a long truck haul to California and not bring her back. Wink, wink. Okay. Yeah. The next time Barb Raver contacted David, she seemed anxious, but not about any supposed calls made to the shanty. Barb was worried about possible evidence left at the scene. My tire tracks are probably all over there, she told David. I was there the night before. He told Barb not to worry. She had nothing to do with what happened to Eli's wife, right? Neither of them did. Boyle finished the search warrant to search the Raber house. Now it would go to a judge. Then it would be time to make some arrests. Yes. Yay. On June 10th, 2009 at 4.15 p.m., both Barb and Eli were arrested for murder and conspiracy to commit murder respectively. So quick. So, so quick. I mean, they got these guys fast. It happened on June 2nd and they were already arrested by June 10th. That's how bad they are at murder. (laughs) Barb was Mirandized, but later there'd be some confusion as to how well she understood her rights and if her request for an attorney was respected. So basically what happened was that they gave her the the normal Miranda warning and the right to have an attorney and asked her if she understood. And she said, so I can have an attorney now if I want. And they, according to the arresting officer and kind of according to her too, they said, yes, you can have an attorney if you wish. And so she thought that was a request. She thought by saying, I can have an attorney now if I want, that that was like her saying, I need an attorney now. And of course, the police officer thought she was just verifying her rights. Yeah, because that's what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. So it's not an official request. And obviously, she she gets down to the police station and she starts talking. So she never stops the interview She says later that she just assumed an attorney was coming and she keeps talking. They assume that she's fine because she doesn't, she doesn't stop. You have to stop talking and say, I'm not saying anything until my attorney gets here. Yeah, that's what makes me think that someone used that later as a, you know what I mean? I don't think that. It seems convenient. Like her attorney was like, what exactly did they say? How exactly did you say this? You know? So yes, nevertheless, when she reached the station, she began to talk And through her confession, which she does kind of confess, and the text messages, the true story of what happened that horrible night begins to emerge. So Barb admitted to the Eli affair. So she was very all over the place in this confession. Like at at first she's like, you know, I love Eli. We've been having an affair for six years. He is like, you know, the light of my life. But then like later on, she claims that she was scared of him and he was threatening. So she is like really all over the place with him. She said that she had fallen deeply in love with him despite their marriages and despite the knowledge that there were other women in Eli's life. She would have done anything to make him happy. Originally, Barb tried to deny any part of the murder, but when confronted with the text messages, she broke down and confessed that Eli had been pressuring her to help him kill Barbara since 2008. So they only had those messages from the last few days that they like printed out and put in her face. And she kind of assumed that they had all of her text messages. Yes. So she spilled that this has been going on for a really long time. Yeah, she's not the brightest crayon in the box. 
<laughs> no. The evening of June 1st, which led into the deadly activities of the early morning of June 2nd, happened like this. So after Harley's birthday cake was served, which, of course, Eli was not present for, even though it's his child. Oh, my God. He's disgusting. Mm-hmm. I know. One of the Weaver children went home with Fanny, who's Barbara's sister, and two of Fanny's daughters, Susie and Mary Troyer, stayed at the Weavers. So all of the kids fell asleep in various areas of the house. At some point, Susie moved upstairs to be with her sister, and Eli came home and carried the children who had fallen asleep in Barbara's bed upstairs to the children's room. The only child left downstairs was Harley, who was asleep in a recliner. The master bedroom is also downstairs. So there was a nursery that the baby was in, the master bedroom, and then there was Harley who was asleep on the recliner in the living room. And Harley would later recall hearing a loud thunderclap in the night. It was storming out, so it's possible he actually heard the gunshot. Yeah. But A, he had no idea what time it was because clearly they don't have digital clocks. They don't have – you can't look at your phone. And it it was raining outside, so he just assumed, wow, that was a loud thunderclap that woke me up. And he – turned over and went back to sleep. According to Eli, he came home around 11 p.m., took a shower, and laid down with his wife for a couple hours to get some rest before his 3 a.m. departure for Lake Erie. He said he overslept and the men had to bang on his doors repeatedly, which was true. So the men said that they got there at 3 a.m. and he was supposed to be outside to not wake up everyone in his house. Yeah, but how do you set an alarm? I don't don't know. (laughs) He did have that secret phone. So, I, I mean, he had a way, but I don't know in general how they do it. A cuckoo clock? <laughs> Can you wind a cuckoo clock to come no. at a certain time? <laughs> yeah, if you guys – any of you guys are, you know, horologists out there, little clock experts, I think that's the word for it. It is. Please let us know if you can – you can set a clock to have Yeah, what is, what is the Amish alarm clock? Yeah, a rooster. <laughs> so yeah, so they did they did say that they got there at 3. He wasn't outside. They were banging on the door and they don't know where he was for about 15 minutes. He claimed at that point he was still sleeping that the banging on the door actually was the thing that woke him up and then he had to get his stuff together. We can determine that that was probably a lie based on the timing of the text messages he was exchanging with Barb. Okay. So he was exchanging text messages with Barb all throughout from 2.21 a.m. on. Okay. So it seems very fishy that he says he was sleeping because we have proof he was responding and writing text messages. he's a liar. Mm-hmm. Eli claims his wife was alive and sleeping when he departed for his fishing trip. Between 2.21 a.m. and 4.47 a.m. that morning, Barb and Eli exchanged several texts, the ones that I read to you earlier. Yep. There's no hard proof as to when exactly Eli left, though the men estimated it was around 3.15, nor when Barbara arrived at the house. But by 3.37 a.m., he was having breakfast with his fishing pals at an all-night diner in Wooster, and at 3.39 a.m., she was asking where she should park. The other men remember Eli being distracted, constantly checking his phone. So the the men he was with were Amish, but they were more New Order Amish or more progressive Amish. And one of the other guys was a business owner as well. He ran an auction business, and he was actually the one who kind of encouraged Eli to get a phone because he said if you were going to do business with, like, English people, you needed to have a cell phone. And, like, you could kind of bend the rules if it was to provide for your family, you know? Even though he wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> so so these guys weren't like completely aghast that he was using a phone, you know? Yeah. So he was in the diner at that 
point. And then Barb claimed that she arrived at the Weaver's house around 4.30 in the morning. She said she parked behind their barn, walked through a field, and into their home through the basement doors Eli had left open. She walked directly into the bedroom as Eli had explained the layout of the home and claimed that the gun went off by accident. Which was absolutely not true because pointing it at her. Yeah. She said that she was going to just scare her, which none of the text messages obviously support that. It's ridiculous. And the forensics would later show that the gun had been pressed, like based on how the, the gun burn was. Yeah. It had been pressed against the comforter and her chest tightly when it was shot. So that was just a bunch of bullshit trying to minimize what she did. Like, oh, I went in and I, I it accidentally went off and it happened to, what is she, Annie Oakley? It went off and hit her exactly square in the chest. It was one one shot, you know? <laughs> absurd. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, yep. this is the only woman that he slept with who he could get to convince to kill his wife. <laughs> She's it's what we're working and with here. And she is a lifetime prevaricator. She's known as a liar. So, of course, she's – even in her confession, she's lying. Yeah. And minimizing. So she claimed to have returned home and returned the 410 shotgun to her husband's gun cabinet, though no gun would eventually be found. They did search her home and they didn't find the gun. And this becomes a big question for the court case. There's – some evidence that they she might have hid it in this camper and then they took the camper to be destroyed. Like the camper was broken down into scrap at some point. And they think maybe the gun was in the camper when that happened. But nonetheless, this gun disappears. So obviously that that is also a lie because she told the cops that they could find the gun in her home. Yeah. And she also told the police that both Tabitha and their mutual friend David Weaver had been asked by Eli to kill his wife, which was also true. Tabitha said that Eli had mentioned killing his wife or like, hey, would you kill my wife? Like several times, but she always like wrote it off as him joking, which also guys like don't if people people shouldn't joke about that. If they are joking, then you shouldn't be friends with them because that's a really sick joke. And if they're not joking, then you shouldn't be friends with them because they're a murderer. Yeah, then you should run. Yeah, exactly. You should report them and then run far, far away. (laughs) Actually, run first, then report them. (laughs) So she said she'd carried out the crime because though she was in love with Eli, she also had become threatened by him. She said, I was threatened and scared for my family if I didn't cooperate with him. And I mean, he was getting very pushy on those text messages you could see, but like, I don't know if she was threatened by him. You still had a choice, honey. Exactly. The next day, when faced with the facts that A, the cops could not find the murder weapon, and B, the forensics suggested that there was no way she could possibly have accidentally shot Barbara from across the room, she recanted her entire story as saying that it was not true at all. She wasn't even in the house. She felt cornered, and she thought that by telling them what they wanted to hear, she would get to go home. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then this time she said, I'm not saying anything else until I get an attorney. So it seems like she did have an idea of how to use those words because she did it the next morning. Yeah. Yeah. So Barb was appointed a public defender named John Leonard and the two set to work on her defense. Meanwhile, Barb swore up and down to her devoted husband, Ed, that she had been falsely accused. 
Though they knew the calls were being recorded, Barb Raber spoke to her husband and sister while she was in jail in Pennsylvania Dutch, assuming that no one would be able to understand. Um, I'm like, honey, babe, you live in Amish country. Have you ever heard of a translator? <laughs> yeah. Naturally, she was unbelievably wrong about this. So we have some of the translated phone calls right here for you. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah. It's it's crazy. So this is when she's in jail. And they even say – I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have ever talked to a prisoner. But they they tell you in the recording these, these calls are being monitored. Yeah. So – I don't know why she thought she was so clever or she was going to get around this. Of course, they have police officers that can speak and translate Pennsylvania Dutch, you know? And so Ed said, everyone is saying you did it, Barb. I did not. This is why I need an attorney. Do they have my computer, Ed? Huh? Barb, do they have my computer, Ed? Yeah, they got everyone's. Barb, yours too? Ed, yeah. He didn't ask why she was asking and his jailed wife didn't leave him any room to do so. Barb, I got to get out of here, Ed. Ed, I know, but I ain't got a million dollars. He kept pressing her for answers and she kept denying everything. Ed, so what is Eli accusing you of? Barb, I have no idea what he's doing. I don't know if David is involved. They are going on all the text messages. Did they take all of the phones? Ed, they didn't get the boys. Barb, did they get the other phone? Ed, yeah. Barb, shit. What other? Oh, the phone that she tried to get rid of? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> was Another, her bail really a million dollars? It was something extre- exceedingly high. Okay. I think it was something like a million dollars and you have to come up with 10% of that. Got you know? it. Okay. Yeah. Another call showed how Barb didn't understand that she was in the kettle and the heat was on high. When she called <laughs> Ed, he told her she <laughs> was at a friend's house. Do they think it was me? Ed, yeah. Oh, um, no, no, nope. <laughs> It was about the friend's house that he was at. <laughs> um, nope. Everyone thinks it's you, Barb. Ed Raber received a lot of desperate calls from the county jail. Barb needed some TLC and she wasn't going to get it anywhere but from him. There was an enormous irony to that. Those listening to the calls thought that Ed was a fool to listen yeah, to his wife. I know. Poor guy. Speaking of Cucktoberfest. I know. Poor Ed. Poor Cuck Ed. Oh. Poor cuck, Ed. Barb says, I'm starting to get scared again, Ed. You are afraid or what? Barb, I'm scared. Ed, why? Barb, that paper they gave me. Ed, what papers? Barb, indictment for aggravated murder on the bottom. It says subject to life in prison. Ed, oh, well, oh yeah, you didn't do it, so don't worry about that. Barb, what are you going to do if they put me in prison for life? Ed tried to calm her. He reminded Barb that the state didn't have any evidence against her. She hadn't even been away from the house that night. So she had successfully snuck out and snuck back in. He'd swear to that on the witness stand if asked to. She was home. He was home. She couldn't have left to kill Barbara Weaver, could she? Barb Raber was rattled. She had thought that Eli loved her, but she'd been duped. She knew a few days into her jail time that Eli would turn on her. Of course he would. He turns on everyone he does anything that's the best for him he doesn't give a shit about you barb she dialed her husband to discuss the importance of her alibi if you talk to the lawyer make sure you tell him you were home all night i don't care what it takes i just want to get out the timeline was crucial barb raber saw her only chance out of this mess as having a stalwart and believable alibi That was Ed Raber's job, and Barb made no bones about the fact that her life hung in the balance, and he was the only one who could save her. She also needed Ed as a source of news. 
Did you tell him you were home all night and stuff? She asked during a call, aware that the detectives had been talking with Ed. Yeah, he said. Somebody was talking up here that their mom saw on the news that they had not found the murder weapon yet, she said. Ed tried to put the brakes on. You know you're not supposed to talk about it, he said. I did not say anything, nothing at all. I just let them talk. They were talking about the Amish man. I did not say a word. I did not say anything, Eddie. I just let them talk. So finally, it was Ed Raver's turn to talk. He had listened to his wife spout off all sorts of reasons why she hadn't been involved in the murder, how she couldn't possibly have done any of the things the detectives and media were reporting. They had it all wrong. People in the community felt sorry for Ed. Of course they did. Yeah. Many considered him a complete dupe. He just couldn't take it anymore. He summoned the courage to ask her what was so very heavy on his mind. I I don't know how I want to ask this. Uh, now I'm only going to ask you once, he said, stumbling through his words on a phone call with Barb in jail. Now, uh, uh, I will accept the answer. Whatever you give me, okay? Uh-huh, Barb answered. I am still with you. Did you ever do anything, you know, do anything with him? Barb oh, he doesn't even know? He doesn't know. She must have known that her husband would ask this. A long time ago, Eddie, she said. Before you married me? Yeah. He accepted her lie. Ed was always good at believing in her. I don't know what he's saying, she added. I have no clue. So everyone is telling him she was definitely cheating on you, bro, and he is standing by her. I mean, she needed someone like that, though. She's a pathological liar. She, of course, would marry whoever she can kind of pull the blind Lines over mm-hmm. their eyes, you know? Exactly. So all of these phone calls come from the book A Killing in Amish Country by Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris, guys. So big, big props to the book. Another phone call that showed the deep well of Amish forgiveness was when Ed recounted a conversation he had with Barbara Weaver's father. So Ed talked to the victim's father. So Ed said, did you have a good night? Barb said, nope. Ed said something indecipherable. Barb said, it's all right. I don't deserve to have a good night. Oh, you're right about that, Barb. Yeah. Ed, uh, Barb, her dad called me. Barb, oh, yeah? Why? Ed, he just said that they were thinking about us, praying for us. Barb, Barbara's dad? Ed, yeah. Barb, the one who died? Ed, yeah. Barb, her dad. Ed, uh-huh. Barb, oh. Ed, why? Barb, what else did he say? Ed, he was really nice. Barb, what else did he say? Ed, he just said that he wanted to say that you had been up at Eli's way too much and that he should have called me earlier. And uh, they too feel Eli knows what happened, but – and then something was inaudible. Barb, I was not up there that often the whole last year, Eddie. Ed, yeah. Barb, does he feel it was me? Ed, I don't think so. Barb, all right, whatever. What else did he say about me? Ed, nothing that I know, just up there too often. Barb, did you tell him I was not up there that much the whole last year? Ed, yeah, I told him. He knew. Is Eli locked up right now? Yes. Okay, Eli's locked up too. Okay, good. So they're both locked up. So at another point in these conversations, she reveals that Eli owes her more than $5,000 for the (gasps) phone bill she paid for him, which is a crazy amount of money. All this, um, you know, text messages when you didn't have a text message plan. Exactly. It really is. It adds up. So, of course, Ed is aghast. He's trying to understand why she's, like, paying for his phone. She's paying for his phone bill. She's paying for Tabitha's phone bill. Why is this going on? And 
and he can't reconcile this in his head with his vision of his wife and their marriage and why she would do this for a guy she's not sleeping with, right? Was she still sleeping with Ed? I think so. I mean, I don't know what their marriage was like. They didn't really say. Ugh, woof. Um, again and again, he also begs for the truth, but she maintains the lie and he ends up standing by his woman. So she did have very good reason to believe that Eli would turn against her. On August 27th, with his trial looming, Eli agreed to plead guilty to complicity to commit murder. In return for a lighter sentence, he would hand the prosecution barb on a silver platter. So usually in these cases, we see the puppet like finally turning on the puppet master, the yep. person who was manipulated to kill. In this case, the mastermind is turning on his minion. Wow. Mm-hmm. This you, guy they do not let him off easy. Uh, you'll see. It's Ugh. it's not great. This guy is a real piece of work, though. Like disloyal to the very very end. Ugh. At any point, if he can get something, it doesn't matter who he screws over. Even his children. Think about that text yeah. conversation. Unbelievable. So with but it's okay. No they rem- would they would go to heaven. They would go to heaven. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. (laughs) With absolutely no remorse and what the detectives described as a chilling coldness, Eli recounted the murder plot and Barb's willingness to assist him. The ADA, Edna Boyle, offered Barb a few deals as well. So she offered her the first deal was 23 years to life, and they rejected that. And then the second was 15 years to life plus eight years for using a gun. And Barb really thought that she had a case and she said no to both deals. Yep, absolutely not. And they were taken off the table for good. So she wanted her day in court and we will see whether that was smart or not. Basing it off of her, (laughs) our experience with Barb the last hour, I would would say no. No, it's not a great decision. It's not Uh, a great decision. She doesn't make good decisions. No. She doesn't know how. So the no. The trial began on September 16th, 2009 in Worcester, Ohio with the Honorable Judge Robert J. Brown presiding. The gallery was a sea of white and navy blue and black clad Amish folk. In fact, the judge said later that it was insane. Like in all of his years of law, he had never seen a courtroom just so filled up with Amish people that he like was tempted to take a picture with his phone because it was such a wild sight. He's like, but that would have been unprofessional. So he didn't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The defense attempted to get Barbara's confession, Barb Raber's confession thrown out that's because of the confusion about the Miranda, but the request was denied. So they had to work around her confessing and saying it was an accident. Yep. So they decided to go with, this is their strategy, yes, Barb accidentally fired the shot, but that Eli had already strangled his wife, Barbara, to death before he left for the fishing trip. And then he used Barb to cover up his crime. Was there any scientific evidence of this? So there was apparently an early medical examiner's report that estimated the time of the murder between 1230 and 330. Oh, and Barb said she hadn't arrived in the house until 430. There was also some very confusing like scratches and bruises on her body that seemed like it could be indicative of some sort of struggle. Wow. And there was some sort of bruising around the throat. Now, it's it's interesting because 
it's possible that this was true. Barbara's sister testified that Barbara herself had said that she didn't enjoy sex with Eli because he was very rough with her. Yep. And they had had sex on Sunday, and I think this was like Tuesday night. So it's possible that he is such a dog. He was still sleeping with his wife. He was still sleeping with his wife. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Yep. And she wrote it like in her journal. So that was from her. She didn't say whether he used excessive force, but she did talk about how she could never please him enough. Yeah. So it's possible that those were old bruises or scratches from some sort of terrible sex act that he was violent in. And they did determine that the cause of death was the shotgun wound. So I feel like by 2009, they would have been able to determine whether somebody was shot pre or post-mortem. Yeah, I would think so too. I would think so too. So this would seem to me like just an attempt to muddy the water and get reasonable reasonable doubt. doubt. Yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, she still shot her. So whether she was dead or alive, the intent was still there. Yeah. You know? So it it seems like to me just a tactic and not not really true, which also doesn't make Eli look good because that's still – he's a gross asshole who abuses his wife during sex, you know? So the prosecution had a pretty straightforward case. I mean, there was a lot of good evidence here, you know? (laughs) They had the evidence that was given by Eli and the detectives, and that was totally solid. Text messages proved that Eli and Barb had planned the murder. Barb had researched various poisons and finally, without much discussion, had settled on a shotgun as a murder weapon. Later, we're going to talk about like all of her search history which she didn't wipe oh my god (laughs) Mm -hmm. this girl yep text placed barb at the murder scene after the murder barb had asked eli how to clean a shotgun and told him to stop using his cell phone until she changed the number the detectives would testify that there was no sign of a break-in and that burglary wasn't the motive because there was some money that was very clearly out like a cash box okay so it seemed impossible that it was a burglary and then, of course, there's the text. The texts are everything. So the ADA would call David Weaver, Barb's friend and one-time lover, to testify that she'd asked him to make the fake threatening call to the shanty phone. So none of this is looking good for Barb, obviously. Yeah. And they had another surprise. That surprise was Barb's jailhouse friend and cellmate, who was a woman named Dina, who testified that Barb had admitted to her that she had purchased the gun after Eli had on numerous occasions over several months begged her to kill his wife. She also asked Dina how long fingerprints stay on guns and told her that she had purchased rat poison for Eli so he could kill his wife. Oh, my God. So obviously a large part of the prosecution's case came from the text messages and some of the digital forensics, including, like I said earlier, her search history And so in court, they're reading what they got off her computer. And this is a list of some of the searches. Are you ready? Oh, my God. I'm not sure. Where can I get strychnine poison? Can the insecticide tempo kill a human being? What poisons kill humans? How to kill yourself with poison? How much lie can kill a person? Fastest poison to kill a person? Fastest way to kill someone? Kill yourself pills. 10 best ways to kill yourself. Effective methods poison. Rat poison suicide. And finally, how much rat poison will kill a person? 
you imagine this being read? The jury must just be like, oh, God. Bitch, you got to clear your history. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to an incognito window. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So Eli hit the stand, and everything, like, that he said is things I've already told you. They tried to, like, you know, go after him for – how gross he was. And he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm gross. Like (laughs) there was nothing, there was nothing surprising. He outlined the cruel murder plot and he did kind of insinuate that, well, yes, he like had told Barb he wanted his wife dead. It was she who had really ran with the idea. Like she took it upon herself, you know, the defense attorney attempted to like kind of trip him up regarding the hours he said he was asleep when they had proof he was texting and how he was testifying against her to get a shorter jail sentence. So they're like, you're just blaming her so you can get off easier. And he was kind of just like, yeah, I don't know when I was asleep or when I was awake. I was like half asleep. And also like, yeah, I'm getting a shorter sentence, whatever. She still did it. Like he was very much nonplussed by this whole thing. Um, So that pretty much concluded the trial. And in the defense's closing statement, John Leonard reminded the jury that there was not a single shred of hard evidence against Barb. There was not any DNA in the house. There wasn't an errant hair. There wasn't a fingerprint. There was no murder weapon and no proof that she had owned that particular gun. Literally everything was hearsay. It was one guy saying he loaned her a gun and it was another jailhouse person saying that she bought the gun, but they couldn't find the gun. Yeah. So the question was, would that little seed of doubt without the hard proof be enough to get Barb off? So the jury deliberated for five hours. The only question that they asked to have clarified was how the time of death is determined. So observers in the courtroom, you know, when they heard this, wondered if the defense lawyers pushed to create reasonable doubt by suggesting Eli murdered Barbara in the early morning had worked, if they're wondering about the death timing. Yeah. In the end, it had not. (laughs) The jury found Barb Raber guilty of both aggravated murder and using a firearm in the commission of aggravated murder. As the judge polled the jury on the unanimous vote, Barb collapsed into tears, sobbing over and over again. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, she is sticking to her lie. (laughs) So later that week, Eli was formally charged, and he was sentenced to 15 years to life. Okay. So he could be potentially out in 15 years, or it could be longer. I think I don't know if that's necessarily fair for his plotting his wife's death. I don't death. think so either. Yeah, but he's just I, a scumbag yeah. in general. So it's like Yeah, he's I just don't. a scumbag. The judge did not seem to think it was fair. He wasn't the one who cut the deal, obviously, the ADA was. Yeah. I think that the the judge was very disgusted with Eli's behavior and he's like he had left the community twice before and he came back twice and he's like you should have walked away a third time like you could have walked away without killing your wife and destroying a family you know so I think the judge would have given him more time if he could so a week after that Barb was sentenced for aggravated murder so though the ADA pushed for life without the possibility of parole or 30 years to life the judge decided on 20 years to life plus three years on the gun charge. So he felt that her sentence should have parity with Eli's. Yeah, but Eli should have been longer. 
that Eli should have been longer. Yeah. <laughs> like I think he would have been happy to give them both 30 years. But because Eli only got 15, he went only up to 20 with her. So yeah. the minion didn't get, you know, more. She got more, but like barely more. Yeah. So she's going to serve 23 years at the very least. So the Weaver children were split up between Fanny and another couple. Because that's, I mean, a lot of kids. Fanny already had four children of her own. So she could only take, I think, the two eldest. Okay. They are now recovering. But for a long time, all the children had bouts of crying and anxiety, which I'm sure they did. They saw their mother that way. And you know what's really sad is that I bet that the two youngest, one was like two and one was a baby, don't even remember their mother. And they have no pictures of her. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. It's so sad. And there was a story from the book about like the two-year-old, which in the morning, like the aunt was trying to like brush her hair. And she was like, no, mama do it. No, mama do it. And then like a couple weeks in, she started calling the aunt mama. I know. It just broke my heart to think of like a loving mother just erased like that by the person who was supposed to protect his family. Yeah. He's disgusting. So this is what I was talking about a little earlier. The murder may have had an impact on how the Amish view staying in a marriage no matter what. An Amish elder said that the church leaders recently helped a woman in a physically abusive marriage move out of her home and they shunned the physically abusive man. That's so cool. May, maybe this tragedy will do a little good and save future women that are stuck in Barbara's situation. And is that for all Amish sex? I don't know. This one was specifically, I think, the same Andy Weaver sect. Okay, cool. I'm hoping it's it's for everybody. Yeah. I don't know. I'm assuming the more progressive the sect is, the easier it is for people to do that, you know? Yeah. So Barb Raber is still locked up, and her earliest date with the parole board is set for 2032. Her conservative Mennonite church still encourages members to reach out to her. Okay. And the company line is that she will be welcomed back with open arms if and when she is released. Although some individuals who go to the church talk to these authors and they were kind of like, ew, no. <laughs> no, thank you. We do no. not want her back. Yeah. They said basically like the church like is like, okay, who's who's going to write to Barb this week to make her know that the church hasn't forgotten her? And like a lot of people were like – I'm not going to do it. Or if they get like assigned to do it, they just don't do it. Amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, so for most of his life, all of his life, Ed remained married to Barb and he intended to stand by her side until the end. Wow. He ended up meeting with Eli's lawyer. And Eli's lawyer tried to tell him like, yes, they had an affair. Yes, she did this. Like, yes, I have proof. This is like – this was not a railroading. This was not a conspiracy. She was part of all this. Ugh. And she had affairs with other men. And the guy was like, I thank you for your time, but I'm going to stand by my wife and I'm going to believe her. So he did not want to hear anything other than that. And he stuck by her until he sadly passed away as the result of a heart attack in 2016. And he was only 39. Whoa. So I think it – I mean, this was really – he was literally heartsick. I think that yeah. the stress of this situation and, you know, having to choose his faith and his wife over maybe what his practical side knew, I think it probably contributed to his health condition. Oh, that's know? really sad. 
It's really sad. I feel sad for their kids. You can't like just be lying to yourself forever. You know what I mean? No. This is why we should, you know, forgive and work on ourselves and release like anger and release pain and, you know, go see our therapists and stuff because this shit can kill you. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. So uh, Eli has been officially shunned and is no longer in contact with his children. He is still talks to his parents. He has been writing to English and Amish women alike while he's on the inside. You picking stop up it. Quite, quite the pen pal list, this guy. Stop. Uh-huh. Apparently, for some reason, there was like women's addresses published or something in some Amish newsletter. And he wrote to them and they were like real grossed out. They were like, ew, we know exactly who you are and please don't write to us. But I think that there's some English woman who don't seem to mind as much. Ew. Yep. So he still exchanges letters with Tabitha every once in a while. And she actually talked to the authors and gave <laughs> gave them one of his last letters. So this is what Eli was saying as of this book's publication in 2016. He peppered the pages with exclamation points and smiley faces. He complained about the delay in the mail. He was ecstatic that his mother still wrote to him every week. He filled half a page with the mundane, how he missed fieldwork, how he was looking forward to softball with the other residents, as he preferred to call the inmates. Oh, my God. <laughs> While she was interested in all of that, Tabitha had dangled a question for her friend in her last missive. She wondered how Barb felt about everything that had happened. Resentful and bitter was his response. So these are his words. Yeah. She denies everything to everybody and gets very upset if anybody even talks about it. And that's why not too many people back home have much to do with her. Wow. <laughs> he said he wrote to Barb and told her to confess what she'd done. He wrote, yes, it's hard to admit to such a thing, but it will make her feel better. And only then can healing start for her and everybody else. Get a low, dude. Is like mansplaining how to get forgiveness for the crime that he put her up to. There's so much there. There's so much to unpack. I I can't. I just wanted to leave you guys with that. And then (laughs) he's still in jail. Um. So there's a good recap article on. Jim Fisher True Crime Blogspot, which you can find just even if you just Google this case, it's one of the top things that come up. Okay. And one comment from 2014 says, I know the people who are raising Barbara's children and they are a wonderful couple. The children are loved and growing up in their Amish home and community. So oh, that's great. I hope that's true. Yeah, I really do hope that's true. And I hope that they have, you know, a loving foundation. And it sounds like Barbara was wonderful. So they, you know, they hopefully remember a little bit of her love and kindness and inherited that, you know? Yeah. So there's also like 45 comments on this blog. And like I said, like half of them are just trying to figure out which Barb is which while they like go back and forth of or like who was adopted. And some people kept thinking it was the wife and people are like, no, it's the murderer. And like they're going back and forth. And then like, so all of these comments are going back and forth. Somebody defended Eli being like, well, he didn't actually shoot his wife. This person did. And you're all blaming him. And everyone's like fighting about that. Yeah. And then, and then the very last comment like shuts everybody up, which is kind of funny. And the comment was this, this was from unknown on July 26, 2020. The defendants fell for the tricks and wiles of the devil. They both spit in God's face, offending him by having sexual relationships with people to whom they are not married. 
That which is done in the dark will come to the light. Don't pass judgment. 24-7, Satan is planning a trap for you, working against your weaknesses. Dot, 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 and then in all caps. And you have weaknesses! <laughs> Literally no one wrote a comment after that. Drop the mic. It was just like everyone was like fighting and kibitzing. And then all of a sudden they're just like, Bye. yeah, okay, we're just going to leave you. You just, okay. So that wow. is the story of a murder in Amish country and a real dickhead. <laughs> That's it. Oh. oh man, that was that was tragic. That was totally tragic. I think this was very, very love murdery. Yeah, uh, classic love murder. Sad and kind of an anomaly as far as the you know Amish murders go. There's there's one more Amish murder we will cover at some point. Stop. Uh huh. It's and it's actually written by Greg Olson too, and oh I wanted God. to do it like later this year. And Nathaniel brought up that he's like, "There's literally like no or Amish murders. You can't have like twenty percent of your stories be about Amish murders when there's literally this does not res- <laughs> like reflect the actual pool of murders." Oh so, yeah, good point. I though. agree. Good point. Yeah. So guys, maybe next year we'll get another Amish murder. I do not have an Amish murder thing, I swear. Just both of these cases sounded very interesting. Um, If you liked this podcast and this story or just any of our podcasts, please, 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 please give us a five-star rating and maybe drop a line in a review. It would mean a lot to us. They make us very excited. I really like it when I wake up to Jesse already sending me a message of a review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I am like on top of that. I screenshot it. I send it to Andy and it's a beautiful way to wake up. Yeah. We're going to like try to figure out whether, you know, there's some thank you we can do to say thank you to you guys. Like if you, you know, send us your reviews, we can send you something. But first we have to make some merch so that we have something to send you. So yep. we're working on that too. Cool. Oh, also guys, we hope that you checked out the Cucktoberfest quickie. Let us know what you think of those. Um, We have a really good one coming up next week of a crazy case of a Belgian threesome Cucktober murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Andy, you're going to get an earful of that one. I just selected it for next week's. And we will be doing these Cucktoberfest quickies every Monday in October. And they're just stories that Andy and I find online about people who are cheated on getting some sort of revenge. Some of them are kind of interesting and funny and even charming. Um, And some of them are murder, which is never funny, interesting, or charming. No. Well, maybe interesting, but never funny. So charming. uh, Or charming, yes. But you'll get a – probably you'll get a little taste of charming and you'll get a little taste of murder. In the first one. Exactly. So definitely hope you guys checked out that one. And we will see you again for the second one on Monday. So in conclusion – We here at Love Murder very highly recommend that you get a divorce over planning a murder. It's not going to go well for you. No. I would definitely steer clear of anyone who uses stud in their handle name or uses (laughs) single letters to spell out words in their dialogue. Absolutely, guys. And if you are a gentleman or lady and you're a lady stud and you're thinking about using stud in your profile name, we strongly strongly discourage that. No studs. 
No, no studs. anything studs. No Amish studs. No Italian studs. studs. No unicorn studs. Not, we, no studs. We've learned no studs and no sausage. Yeah, no, no sausage. No, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> and lastly, a special in conclusion for this episode is don't fall into Satan's trap. You all have weaknesses. <laughs> That's quote unknown on a blog. <laughs> Yay! Happy October, guys. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you maybe Monday, maybe Wednesday for the full up. Bye. Bye.